Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Episode ten, the story of jamming, with James Endiacott and Tony Fletcher. Welcome back everyone, and possibly farewell too. Certainly, this is going to be the last episode in what we hope and intend to just be series or season one of the Jamming Fanzine podcast. Back when we launched this show, it was very much to cross-promote the book, The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine That Grew Up, 1977 to 86, published by Omnibus Press and available worldwide. And it's kind of done the job. It's been a lot of fun, and it seems like a good place to put the pause button on is right here with a nice round number 10, that is, episode 10, in which we're going to turn tables slightly, somewhat, and I will be the featured interviewee. We're going to rebroadcast or publish on a podcast for the very first time an interview I did with James Endicott for his Morning Glory show on Soho Radio, one that traces the full story of jamming fanzine magazine, whatever it was, whatever it became. The interview was done on the very day that the book was published in the UK, so I was kind of on on that day, and uh, of all the interviews I've done for the book, it's kind of the best. James is an excellent host, he'd clearly done his homework and read through the book. We know each other well, which I guess helps, and you know, although it was conducted long distance as so many of these are, it really felt like we were in the room together. James was in the band Loop, he did A&R for Rough Trade, he's a big Palace fan as I am, he's a great character, and uh, we featured music, I should say he played music that I selected um, over the course of a two-hour uh, interview slash show. We've edited it down to the one hour. We haven't included the music for copyright reasons. You're welcome to uh, listen to what we said we're playing and go off and find it for yourself. And, um, you know, following a number of episodes that featured former contributors, printers, photographers, musicians featured in jamming over the years, others who were on the jamming label, and even people who worked the virgin shops that, uh, that sold copies of jamming. It just seemed like this is a good place to round things off, at least for now. We're going to take a pause, as I said, and that's in part because uh, the very day that I'm recording this, in fact, in just about an hour or so, I'm going to the UK for a month. It's the first properly social trip since before the pandemic, and I'm doing some events to promote the book in London, Brighton and Hastings on the 23rd, 24th and 25th of February. I'll give full details at the end of the show. I may also conduct some more interviews for this podcast while over there. You know, we've used the term wider remit in talking about what we might do for a second series or season and my thought is that in future the jamming fanzine podcast can become less about the fanzine that grew up i.e jamming and much more about fanzines and the small presses in general 
I'll be back the far side with more information about the upcoming events. And in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with James Endicott. Welcome, Tony Fletcher. How are you doing? I'm doing great, James. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, so um, the reason you're here, well, for many reasons, is that you're an old dear friend. In fact, funnily enough, Tony, I was going to tell you this earlier on, my wife was uh, looking through some old photographs the other day, and we found one of you in the garden of our house in Catford about a month after we'd moved in. And I recognise you not because of your hair, because you had a lot of it then, <laughs> but because you were wearing a Crystal Palace top, of course. And it was, uh, we have that. We have that uh, that we bond over. I think. I think she sent that picture to me down the line. Yeah, it's, it's probably uh, buried away. I was. Uh, it was one of those. I was like, you have to remind me about this. You know, don't. Sorry, sorry. Don't remember the occasion. Then she reminded me. I was like, oh, that's so nice. I came round and you I, just moved yeah. down. Yeah, I think we just moved down. I think it was our son's birthday, and he was called. He's called Travis, and you brought him a little model um, New York City cab because of Travis Bickle. Yeah, that, that, I would love to say I'm still on it like that. I would, I would lo- and then last time I saw Travis, which was actually a couple of years back, was when he rocked up to um, the Porson's Arms before a Paris game. Yeah, um, very, very much uh, in, in the teenage mode of life where yes, um, you're no longer playing with Tonka toys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, that's not the reason why we're here. The reason why we're here is to talk about this book, which is coming out. In fact, it's, in fact, it's out today. It's out today. I- yeah, uh, and it's on Omnibus Press, and it's called "The Best of Jamming: Selections and Stories from the Fanzine That Grew Up, 1977 to 86." Edited by Tony Fletcher, your good self, with a forward by Billy Bragg. So, just for the uninitiated, basically, jamming was a fanzine that Tony started when he was 13 years old in 1977, and ran it for nine years until 1986, and then stopped doing it. And he, and not only did he grow up. Uh, uh, the fanzine grew up into a magazine, a nationally distributed magazine, no less. And um, basically, you've collated uh, the best of all the issues in this. And there's, there's so much in this, Tony. I mean, it's when people say it's a coffee table book, it's a, you need a lot of coffee to get through this because there's a lot of information in there, isn't there? Are you proud of there it? There is. There is. Uh, I'm enormously proud of it. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really, really happy with the book. The intent with the book, it is kind of coffee table, but it's not hardcover and, and glossy. And the intent that I sold it to the printers with was, um, I'm sorry, sold it to the publishers with, you know, after sort of doing the deal, it turns out how I wanted it to feel and look was like one of those annuals that I guess people still get, but we certainly got them when we were kids. And it could be for shoot, you know, the footy magazine, sure, sure. or it could be the Beano, and I guess Top of the Pops did one as well. The idea that you had this bumper, bumper, bumper issue that you'd get for Christmas, like 300 pages of that magazine that you really look forward to every couple of weeks. And it has that feeling. What I really like about it is that the paper feels very fanziny. Yes. So it it's 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 kind of it, it it fulfills that goal of being this retrospective. I, I'm calling it a compendium, really. Um, that actually has has the feel of one giant fanzine. That that said, it's got a lot of contributions um, from people 
like in the current day. So I was able to chase up and find, um, you know, some people I knew, like our mutual friend, Tim, but other people I tracked down, old contributors. Mm. I wrote copy to go alongside every one of the 36 issues. Mm. Um, so it's like a potted history. And then, as you mentioned, you know, Billy Bragg was nice enough to write the forward as well. So there's a lot of fresh copy in there, as well as all these selected uh, interviews, you know, articles, etc. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating read. And we will go through it very slowly over the next hour or so. But um, I just... I we actually kicked off this little section um, by playing The Clash and The Rosillos, uh, who are two artists that are featured in jamming. Are they? Are the, yes. are the Rosillos? They, they are in there. Yeah. Aren't they? And, of, and of course, The Clash. But I just want to go back to 1977. And you, a young lad in South London, obviously you've been bitten by the music bug. What was it, what was it, what was it that made you think, I want to write? I want to tell people about these bands and I want to write it down and sell this or just give it away to my friends. How, how did it all start? The, uh, you know, in some ways uh, there, there, there's genetics in there because my, my parents were both musical and my dad um, uh, also did end up writing. My mum was an English teacher. So I guess, you know, there was always a sense of, oh, can I do something about music? You know, and I was, I was playing music as well. And uh, I only really started a fanzine where I thought I was going to get my band together. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to go, to go down that path. I did get my band together. I was yeah. juggling the two for most of my teens. And, you know, the real impetus was there was, a, there was a group of us, even for me going back to primary school, I'd been massively into music. Um, bigger kids took me under their wing, which is not an uncommon story. I talk to other people and that happens. They see a little, little, they see a little seed in you and they take you, uh, you know, they lend you albums and they talk to you. But really what happened was the summer of 77, we all went home from school and my, it would have been at the end of my second year at school, uh, uh, secondary school, yeah. Archbishop Tennyson's, right at Kennington Oval. And we all thought, we were like hard rock fans you know those of us who were into music and we came back in september august september and uh, other than the ones who stayed devoutedly hard rock some of us were like did you watch top of the pops over the summer did you see the jam did you see the stranglers did you oh, see the yeah. sex pistols the boomtown rats um or obviously the new wavy bands that got on top of the pops you know and and we our minds were blown and yeah. sort of we got back to school and it was like, music's fun. Who's watching Top of the Pops again tonight? Who's got money to buy a single? And um, John Savage, wrote, uh, we, uh, some of us were buying the music papers, particularly my friend John Matthews, who also wrote something for the front of the book. And um, I was reading a copy of Sounds from September 77 in a math lesson under the desk, as you do. <laughs> and uh, John Savage had this, this center page spread about fanzines. And I was just like, that's it. I can do one of those. And, um, you know, and I tried, and the first issue was absolutely god-awful, and I protected it, that what I consider to be must be the lone copy to survive. I've kept it out of sight all these years, <laughs> and then for the book, I was like, no, we can, we, can, we can bring it out now. I can let people see it. Um, but, you know, as I write in the book, hey, you have to start somewhere. And, and that's, you know, that's the potted story. Um, and, and once you start something, you very quickly figure do I want to do this again, or was that a one-off and I, I never want to see it again? And I was the former. Yeah, well, well done. So was it originally called In the City? It was. It was indeed. And after, after, after the song by The Jam, of course. Yeah, after the song by The Jam, who were already my favourite group in 1977. I hadn't seen them by the time that first fanzine came out. Um, in fact, I didn't own the In The City album or, or indeed the Modern World album. Um, I think I got them both at Christmas that year. Mm. But I'd already latched on to 
the jam. I did something very um, monumental in about, I guess it was around October of that year, having bought a few punky singles, new wave singles, including All Around the World, which had really changed me mm. by the jam. I bought uh, the Modern World single, uh, sight, uh, not sight unseen, but without hearing it. I was on a holiday. Right. And it was in the Woolworths, and I just kept looking at it and looking at it and going, if it's, if it's halfway as important to me as all around the world, I'm having this. I'm yeah. going to love it. So I bought it. So I did name that after the jam, and, and fortunately, um, I heard very quickly there was a, a, a perfectly successful fanzine called In the City, named after, not the jam scene. Would you know which one it was named after? Uh, no, I don't. Go on, tell me. It was named after Saturday Night in the City of the Dead, by Ultravox. Oh, wow, wow. They, wow. they were really big Ultravox fans. And uh, and so I'm really, really glad about that because it, it's, it's a bit of a, it would have been a naff title down the line. And jamming, although everybody attached it to the jam, uh, jamming by Bob Marley with Punky Reggae Party on the other side sure. uh, was a big hit that at the time. And I just thought jamming made perfect sense. I knew what it meant as a verb. And I just thought it meant sense. Well, so it, changed it, the name. Well, it, it kind of makes total sense because, you know, you were jamming with your mates in terms of all the ex- exchanging music and records and stuff so i guess so you you do your initial run and you sell it to your mates at school or did you just like give it away or did you sell it how, how did that work? no we never we never gave it away we were pretty <laughs> tight on pretty tight on giving it away so i got the first issues printed at school and um, I don't think the school secretaries were desperately impressed, but they, they printed it anyway, but they charged us for it. And right. so, so uh, I guess, you know, you can't just give away school materials. So we charge people back in, in, in turn. Uh, the, the kid I started it with was his name's Lawrence Weaver. And although I kind of lost track with him, he was this very, very um, hard music fan. And his dad was, uh, very high up. I can't remember the name of the security firm, but it was the bouncers that were every Hammersmith Odin show, every big right, show. Right. And uh, so he came from bouncer stock and he was he was known as being a tough nut, very into Led Zeppelin and Rush. I'm blaming him for their inclusion in early issues. Right, okay. <laughs> and 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 if he went around the class going here, buy a copy of a fanzine, you know, it was, it, people bought it. It was like the old skinheads outside the electric ball. I'm here, mate, got a spare 10p. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you didn't, have it. Oh, yeah. yeah, you didn't really hear the question mark at the end, did you? You just <laughs> no, heard it as a, as a statement. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. So when did you move on to like realizing, um, okay, now maybe, because I remember, I remember really, I was, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you, but only, only about a year younger than you. I remember I was in the wilds of Yorkshire and I was buying singles. And what I would do, if there was an address on the back of the single, I would write to the address and I would write to the band. And that's what I, that, that was my little way. So I used to get letters back from bands. I remember, remember I once wrote to Factory Records, to Joy Division, and got a letter back from Peter Hook. And, uh, Fantastic. And, and I uh, got a letter back from Jeanette Lee, who was in Public Image Limited at the time. So this this worked for me. And I was just like, because, and I was really sort of stuck in the middle of nowhere in West Yorkshire, but it still was just exciting. It was having that connection. You being down in London, you could not only do that, you could go and see these bands a hell of a lot more than a lot of the country could. And I guess you got to meet them as well at a very young age. So that must have been quite instrumental in you wanting to do, to, to do this more. It, it really was. And, you know, we started off with the Rosillos, and obviously I played that all over because yeah, it's the, right. the Palace, Palace theme song. Um, but, but I want to flash back to uh, a gig that, for me, it shines brightest in my memory. It was the Rosillos and the Undertones at the Marquee, October 1978. So we were only 14. I say we because... Um, 
uh, there was a group of us that would go to gigs. I, I don't remember anybody else going to that show with me, but there were a group of us that would, knew we could get into the marquee. This was yeah. also instrumental in our lives. And both bands had been on top of the pops. You know, the undertones, maybe that night, that previous day with mm. Teenage Kicks, they were fresh from the studio. Wow. The Rizillos with the song Top of the Pops. Yeah. And I went down... And I would not only have had the school fanzine at that point, so it didn't even look any good. Uh, but we we were able. We learned very quick. You could walk into the dressing room at the, the market. It <laughs> like it's like CBGBs, yeah. except it had a door on it. It was completely unguarded. <laughs> and asked the Rizillos for an interview, and they did that. And um, I wanted to do one with the undertones as well, but I didn't really know enough yet. But I was madly in love with Teenage Kicks. I mean, who wouldn't be? And um, I said, can you show me how to play it on guitar? Because they were in the dressing room just getting ready to go on stage. So they literally, like Damien, sat there and just showed me the chords, you know, bar wow. chords just up and down. But I hadn't, I hadn't had the sus to work that out. I'm only Fantastic. 14. Yeah. And, and that's what you could do in London at the time. I don't want to uh, suggest, by the way, that you can't do that in your own way in, a, in, in youth music right now. That's not for me to say. And I'm not trying to say, oh, it was perfect then. But having been at this point where, you know, the, the one show I saw in 1976, age 12, was the Who at Charlton. 80,000 people, including all the Forge tickets, rained incessantly, watched them from across a football field. Um, the first show I went to in 1977, Pink Floyd at Wembley. Don't, don't speak to the crowd the entire time, yeah. Wembley Arena. You know, you're fascinated by this inflatable pig flying across <laughs> the arena. To now go from that, to be able to go to gigs where you would get crushed within an inch of your life and these sweaty bands and the undertones looked like they were, if I was a fourth former, they looked like fifth formers because yeah. I think they probably were. They probably were. You yeah. know, yeah. I mean, they were literally a year or two older and the Rizillos being being straight away, like, sure, we'll talk to you. You know, like, like um, I, I can't have been after the gig, but I talked to them. We did something. They arranged, either they did it, you know, they arranged yeah. something because I had a piece on them in that um in that issue five and then another piece with them breaking up uh, in issue six. I think, I think one of the really great things about that time as well in terms of music is that you just said you went to go and see two bands who possibly that week or the week before had been on top of the pops. And, you know, it was easy to get close to those people. But also with jamming, you were also covering other bands as well that weren't getting on top of the pops. You know, you were covering Crass, for example, a lot. You, you write about Crass a lot. And The Fall, of course, you write about. And it's just, you know, who did get on top of the pops, but a lot later on. But at that time, so you, you were not really just, you weren't just concerned with what was popular. You were just concerned with, I guess, what you liked and what, what you and your mates liked. Yeah, very, very, very much so. And I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that at your end because sometimes I have to do that sort of almost defensively. <laughs> People tend to want to associate the magazine, and, and I get it uh, to some degree with the jam and then later the Smiths. And, and yes, we had our pieces on The Clash and U2. And, and I'm aware that all the artists, you know, that we put on the cover, especially once we had like a cover artist, mm were generally sort of white and male. And I, you know, I get all of that. But from early, early on, we were covering everything. I was a massive reggae fan from day one. You know, I was trying to write to reggae groups and get interviews. That wasn't quite part of the same culture. The seventh issue we did, I got to interview an early hero of mine, Bill Nelson. Right. Okay. Um, you know, that was really, really important to me. And then later in 79, which was really the seminal year, you know, we had an issue that had was came out in the middle of the mod revival, but alongside the chords and speedball, I had a piece on the homosexuals right, who okay. have actually, you know, their music is one that stood the test of time. Absolutely. I'm really proud of that. I got, you can imagine 
your audience, depending on their age, might not. But putting the, the word the homosexuals on the front cover of a fanzine was, was really inviting trouble. It was a homophobic time, which is why they called themselves that. We had, we had Spiz Energy in the same issue. The next issue had the fall sharing space with the jam. And something that's in the book is Marky Smith sent me a letter after that fall interview. I loved the fall, loved yeah. them, loved them. And I had a great interview and he wrote, uh, such a nice note to me. You're saying about writing to bands. I yeah, did yeah. the same thing. He wrote to me saying how much he enjoyed the interview, enjoyed the, the way it was presented. And it also made him rethink his attitude to the jam among other bands. Brilliant. And brilliant. so, you know, really happy. And actually that same issue had the selector in it. So right, okay. we were, we were always trying to cover lots of music and it was the thing that saved the fanzine from going down a sort of mod revival cul-de-sac that a lot of people you know did go down because i was never just about that i was spending sure. my days after school at rough trade and sure. hanging out places like that yeah well that just it just brings us to a good point actually so we'll i, th I think we should play a couple of tracks now so we're going to play roush rumble by the fall who you just spoke speaking about and also uh, the beat a, a, a track called home in new zealand i don't know that track actually do you want me to mention yeah it's no, from uh, it's from the second album Wappen. Right, okay uh, Dream Dream Home in New Zealand, which uh, I think one of the, uh, yeah, I just, I love, I've, I love that second album. It's a massively underrated record mm. and it's, that's just a beautiful song. Yeah. So there we have uh, The Beat and The Fall, as chosen by uh, Tony Fletcher, who's got this brand new book out today, in fact, uh, called The Best of Jamming. Uh, he basically ran a fanzine uh, which came into a magazine uh, in the late 70s, early to mid-80s, and he's here uh, via Zoom, the, the miracle of modern, the modern world. Of course, Tony, the, we have this modern world now where we've got Twitter and Facebook and we're, we're Zooming now and everybody can connect. But back then, in the, in the late 70s, when you had your fanzine, that was the way that you connected with like-minded souls around the country. That's how you connected with people. You sold them to people that like yourself. They wrote to you. You got friends to write about it. You learned about bands in different parts of the country via other fanzines. And that was our social media. I know it's been said a million times before, but it really can't be underestimated how this culture really was our social media. It was 100% our social media. It's not that the music press wasn't covering some of this because they were, but they had their own agendas and their way of presenting things. And fanzines just felt like you were talking on a, you know, peer to peer, right? If we want to use an internet term, it yeah. was like, it was peer to peer. You would, if you would go to a gig to sell a fanzine and somebody might say, well, can I swap you mic? mine and people would write to you and say you know here's a copy of my fancy any chance of a copy of yours and uh as you say james you you were writing to bands i was writing to bands early i i had a more opportunity to sort of walk into places like rough trade and yeah. better badges and just sort of bump into them but yeah that was that was our culture it was our underground and 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 our overground and you know, you did have to work for it. And I think you still have to work to get heard above the noise of social media. I mean, if you, you're a new act, sticking music on Spotify won't get you any listens. No, yeah, you still, you still, you still got to work it. But there is something to be said for having to work for it. And um, I have a wonderful, like, sort of rose-tinted view that comes across in most of this book. But, but, you know, you can also glean from reading the book. It was hard bloody work at times. It was it very hard really work. Was. And I think one of, the, one of the great things that you've done with this compendium, as you like to call it, you've not just reprinted uh, the issues in either full format or half format or whatever. And uh, you, as you mentioned earlier, you've also got various people who contributed to the fanzine to write a little bit. But another great thing as well, as well that you've put in there, 
proving the hard work notebooks, your notebooks of how much it was costing you. Like, yeah. there's a very famous Scritti Politi single, which you probably will know the name of, I can't remember, which they put out on their own label. And they put on the back of the single, as a lot of artists did in the late 70s, how much it cost them to record it, to print the sleeves, da da da. And you were kind of, you had these notebooks, especially in the early years, you can see them down there, about how many you've said to so and so this, but how much you owe better badges, how much you owe this. And it's a real insight into the fact that, yes, your enthusiasm comes across and your love of music comes across. And I, I do hate that the diversity of what you like comes across very quickly as well. So don't be worried about people thinking it was all white male people. It certainly wasn't. But what really does come across is the fact that you had to really work at this. And it was, it was a bloody juggling act, Tony, wasn't it? It, it was an enormous juggling act. I, there, there's this part of me that's so proud of keeping those notebooks, though the neatness <laughs> with which they are kept suggests that, you know, there's lots of words you could use to describe the 14, 15-year-old me, and not, not all of them would be totally complimentary, but fastidious might be one word. And um, uh, somebody else was doing an interview and pointing this out. You know, you've written down 20 copies got sent to Kate in Norwich, and there's a tick, there's a tick to indicate that she paid for them. I'm like, well, that's what you had to do. You, you, you would be like, well, who wants to sell copies? And somebody would say, well, I'll take 20. And I, 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 you know, I go to school in Norwich. I go to the uh, university, and there's a couple of gigs coming up. Send me 20, and I'll try and sell them. And I, yeah. three months down the line, they, they, uh, they'd send you back five pounds or something, and they'd have, they'd have paid for them. I did have to do that. Uh, printing was a nightmare. Um, a lot of shops insisted on taking copies, sale or return. Yeah. So uh, you know, not only did you have to keep the um, the little receipts, but you really needed to know what they'd taken. And, and also, to be honest, if a shop took 25 copies, you wanted to have a memory of that so that when you went in next time and somebody else behind the counter said, oh, don't know about this, I'm not sure, you'd say, look, you took 25 of the last one. I've got it written down here, I promise you. Yeah. And then they might say, oh, all right, well, I'll tell you what, if I, I'll take your word for it. So there were a lot of reasons for doing that, and, um, and it did kind of pay off in terms of having that organization that allowed the fanzine to grow. And you're talking about the fanzine growing, which leads on to, uh, I think it's issue 10, where you get your first sort of artistic cover. Yeah. Where I'd, I can't remember the name of the artist, who was a friend of yours maybe, but you got him to design jamming, a very sort of pop art uh, design, you know, very much in, in the style of the 60s pop art movement. But um, you, I think you actually do say in your little uh, comment about that issue, how you kind of ruined the sleeve by writing in the bottom corner in just like normal, like lecture set, which is very funny. But so that, that, that issue must have been quite a big thing for you to like, the, you're actually getting somebody to design a logo and going forward. Yeah, it was massive. The person's name was, and unfortunately that's past tense, Robin Richards. He was designer for Fifth Column T-shirts okay, and, and later Second Vision T-shirts. He did the interior of the Jam Setting Suns LP. He actually did the back cover as well and the drawing on the inside. I met him at Better Badges, um, which was a nice coincidence. And he also turned that guitar look that he did for that issue 10 into Paul Weller's famous um, Liechtenstein Pow Wham yeah. guitar, whichever it Wham guitar that was used on the start video and is now in museum somewhere. And Robin was, he also, like a few people, took me under his wing. Um, he didn't like dedicate himself to one band or another. He was quite a contrary character, but he was a great artist and he put in a lot of hard work to make jamming 
stand out even more than it did. And between Robin's artwork uh, when he could do it for us and the fact that Jolly at Better Badges was um, had a, a, a sort of loyalty to jamming because I'd been the first fanzine he'd basically printed. And so he carried on for a long time printing jamming at cost because I would send other businesses away. Uh, okay. So between those two things, I really sort of built up um, – you know, an impressive, I mean, the fact was I could print in a certain amount of color and still put it out cheaply because I had Robin willing to do the designs and uh, Jolly printing at something close to costs. I guess, and, and I think also, sorry to interrupt, sorry, but also a thing yeah. that I really get around this time is that um, not only are you getting, you're sort of upping the ante in the magazine the way it looks, you're also, you're a very, very busy person because you're doing exams at school, you're in a band yourself who are touring and you're trying to get that, and then you start a record label with Paul Weller, and there's all these, I mean, I know I've probably got the timeline slightly wrong. What I'm trying to say is there was a lot of things going on in your life in your late teens, early 20s. It wasn't like you were just sat at home doing this all the time. You were doing a lot of, and there was a very frustrating, you, you talk about it a lot actually, very frustrating gap in between a lot of those fanzines around that time yeah there there was and you've got the timeline pretty much right um two or three of my school friends wrote something for the for the front of the book and uh, one of them richard um uh, and i actually reunited with all three of them we're actually doing some podcasts to go with the book and uh, richard was the one who coined the phrase for me when he said one day school he said for you tony school is just an occupational hazard of being young which was just <laughs> brilliant. Summed, summed brilliant. me up perfectly. Perfect. Uh, but I did, I did decide to, to at least get my O-levels. I didn't want to be one of those who walked out without the O-levels. So, so the, between that, there was a long gap. And then I just got it going again in a, in a really good way when um, Weller came through with this offer, the suggestion he'd had a year earlier about running a label. And I really had just got the, 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 the fancy. It was looking beautiful. And then I was suddenly running this label with him and my world just, just like exploded because, because it did. And I had my own band. And as Jenny, one of my other friends who writes for the book points out, you know, it wasn't just exams and record labels and my band. It was like girlfriends, you know, it was like I had to kind of, <laughs> kind of get my priorities right. You know, the fanzine's great, but I've just fallen in love for the first time, you know, yeah. all of these things. And, um, I, I mean, obviously, I was to some degree, I was just living the life of Riley. But within that, I would get these um, letters. You know, I was, I was used to getting sort of like fan mail for the fanzine. I'd instead get these letters from um, people who sent in subscriptions from overseas being like, um, it's 11 months since you sent me a fanzine. You know, who are you, Richard Branson? Give me my money back. Publish a fanzine. Fantastic. So, yeah. It's, it's cool because, I mean, we, we all, whether it's in music or whatever, that age in your life, you do just juggle so much. It's only looking back in retrospect. We just think, how the hell did I manage to do all those things at the same time and manage to survive? And it's incredible. You, you look now back on a piece of paper, all the things you were doing, Tony. It's just like, I mean, you, you must think to yourself, how the heck did I get through all that? But you know what? But you did. You did. And we're going to pause actually for a little bit of money because once again i want to show a little bit of the the diversity uh that you would of the, the bands and artists so we're going to play we're going to play the smiths billy bragg and smiley culture right so welcome back to uh, morning glory here on soul radio where we're talking to tony fletcher about his jamming a compendium of old jamming issues which is a fanzine that he ran in the late 70s uh, and in early 80s and the mid 80s even and we've just heard um three artists two of them have uh, mentioned a lot in there the smiths and billy bragg and also smiley culture as well because a lot of people say you didn't cover enough reggae type music or whatever and i think that just proves that you were a lot more diverse than people think but first of all i want to talk about both billy bragg and the 
Smiths because I think they were very important to you and to the fanzine as well, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And uh, when jamming went first bi-monthly and then monthly, I would say it was the Smiths that were selling copies for us. We we were sort of on them good and early. Um, Morrissey was the only person to get two front covers in one cal- calendar year. And I, I always find it really interesting, the Smiths, because when the jam broke up, and obviously I've been close to them, all everybody around London, you know, the music business, and by that point I was connected, they're all looking for the new jam, the new right. jam, the new jam. And they're all just assuming it's going to come from London. Yeah. You know, and they weren't, they weren't wrong about the Rickenbacker element, but they were wrong about sort of everything else. And I always maintain that, that, you know, if you actually look at the calendar, you know, the jam broke up and within six months, the Smiths are releasing a single pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And, you know, that's where it came from for, the, for that new generation. And the Smiths were important. And I loved, I loved them. I, had, I was able to see them a lot, uh, various connections. I ended up writing a, a biography on the band. And Billy Bragg, similarly, you know, very Cockney, very London. You'd see him opening for every artist because he was a cheap support slot yeah. that everybody loved <laughs> and um i look back with great fondness on the fact that you know we occasionally i occasionally i actually had good editing instincts and when billy bragg was getting lots of press early on i said let's not do an interview billy you're like so super hip at the moment can you write a piece for us Brilliant. about uh, oh. the, the guy the billy bragg guy to being hip <laughs> so <laughs> so he took it in exactly the spirit intended it's published oh actually i just i think i just saw it it's published in here and he's got like i can just do this let me just read this straight off off yeah, the top yeah, um clothes because he's got different headers clothes this the predominant dress style for february 1984 is going to be warm clothes it is always better to be warm than to be hip as any hypothermia victim will tell you <laughs> brilliant he's so funny that man he's so funny yeah. that's so good that's so good and so and, and he wrote a great piece as well at the, at the front of the of the book and one of the things that i really get about this period of time this early 80s and i, I was well, lucky or whatever, I was I was also growing up in that time. Is all these bands that we loved, and even some bands like Echo and the Bunny Men, and Orange Juice, and other type of bands. All of a sudden, these bands became. Oh, you were talking about the underground. These bands became the overground, and they became on top of the pops all the time. And the uh, new pop sound was happening, you know, with ABC and the Human League and synth pop was happening with Soft Cell and all these bands. But you you managed to kind of change with the times, or you kept current as well, didn't you? I mean, you weren't, you were covering a lot of those artists, but as a fanzine, you were going through literally from 1977, where it was punk, and that was it, to all of a sudden we're in like the, the, the mid-80s, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood are even in there, who were like one of the biggest bands in, in, the, in the country at the time. Yeah, Frankie were on the cover twice. The only other, uh, well, them and Madness and, and the, you know, the Smith, uh, Morrissey and the Jam, probably. Who, who, um, were all, who were all massive bands, Tony. So this, is, yeah. this, this wasn't what I'm trying to point out. This wasn't just a fanzine stroke magazine for the underground. You were covering really, really big acts. And this is at a time, dear listener, when you have to remember, there was about four or five weekly music magazines as well, as well as lots of other magazines like yourself. But, you know, you had Sounds, Melody Maker, NME, Record Mirror, bl- all sorts of things plus all this, but you were still getting interviews with these people still writing about them and selling copies now does that i mean that proves to me you were very eclectic and, it, and also but it's interesting how it all became the overground and that's what really fascinates me 
Yeah, it it did. I mean, the Frankie one is interesting because I think when Frankie first uh, you know, took off and exploded, given that their, their their roots in the Liverpool scene, I think there was a sense that they were going to be credible as well as popular. Mm. I remember our photographer Russell Young, who went on uh, to do in, in incredible work, and uh, he was he really came up through jamming, and he he pitched them to me. He's like, I think they're the new Doors. They're going to be like a teeny bot band. This is why he's a photographer and not a writer. I think think they're going to be a teeny bot band and they're going to be credible. So I took his word for it. Um, And that's actually one of the few, you know, I don't mind putting them on the cover once. I think twice was was excessive. There was um, there was obviously a a sort of a little barrier. You know, we were never going to cover Duran Duran. We were never going to like write and call EMI and say we really want a Duran Duran interview. I scratched my head as to why and how I let somebody talk me into doing an interview with a guitarist from culture club having said that and this is really important my office was at nomis studios and downstairs in the rehearsal areas on a daily basis you would have culture club haircut 100 maybe duran duran usually motorhead uh, to mix it up possibly iron maiden um maybe um i'm trying to think who else boy george would be throwing a hissy fit every day of the week you would i was like mingling with these people while sort of disliking some of the music but i have to say as a fan i liked a lot of the synth pop i mean i liked loved soft cell i liked some of depeche mode as a magazine i think we really kind of like hung out our store on the indie scene and it was more to do with the fact that you know, maybe we should have given more coverage to Mutax because they're an indie label. But I think we sort of did see where our, our place in the market was and it wasn't the synth new romantic slash blitz kid scene. So I remember loving some of those records. I still think Dare is a spectacularly good album. And, yeah. You know, a lot of that stuff. But we didn't really we really cover it. We we found that our market was, in terms of cover artists, it was the white rock thing. But then always when you picked it up, there was politics. There were artists. There were there were actors. There were football players. You know, we really tried to make it di- diverse on the inside. Oh, you were, uh, you, you know, yeah. you were very diverse. I mean, it is, you know, it's not, it's, you very famously th- uh, go on about um, when Paul Weller got into poetry, you decided to do a bit about poetry. And you, I think there's one bit where you say, I can't believe I had three pages of poetry in, in, yeah. like, in like one issue. Maybe I went too far. But just going back to the music, oh, one of the three tracks we just played, we didn't mention was Smiley Culture. Um, why was he important? And why, why is he one of the uh, tracks? I mean, I know the, it's a great track. Well, yeah, I was looking through the the, the book, and uh, you know, in terms of putting this the, the book together, the editor at Omnibus was quite smart when I first went in in classic style with twice as much copy as we could include. You know, I went in, I went, okay, these are the pages, and he went, well, that's five hundred and forty pages. We've commissioned two hundred and twenty-four, yeah. <laughs> and they actually they actually upped it twice, which I really appreciated without increasing the price. So they they've got faith in the book. But he went through and said, you know, I like the idea of making sure you do have an interview with a, a politician or a piece on politics, a piece on sports, a piece on somebody like a Michael Palin. And um, when I was looking through it, I made sure that we had two pieces. Um, I had done an interview, uh, a piece about that label that, that Smiley Culture was on. Then we also did a guy called Hugh Morley wrote a lot of good copy for us. And he wrote a really good spread on the rise of the British MC. Right. And okay. uh, it looks really good. And I reprinted that because I think he, he was on it. He also went to New York as some of our uh, contributors did on his own money and came back with a run DMC interview and some great photos of them on the streets wow. of New York City in the snow. So I was really, um, 
I was really pleased about that. And I was listening back, and Smiley Culture is a little dated, but it's, it's fun, great. isn't it? It's so, fun. It's fun, right? And I, I think what one of the things that do run through it all is, is, is that sense of fun that you just say there. You know, a, a lot of the music you talk about, I mean, I know you've got your, your Echo and the Buddy Men's and your, your Smiths that could tend to be a little bit dour, but one of the, one of the taglines that you uh, use is, um, uh, you talk about jamming, a new optimism for the 80s. So, yeah. I mean... It, it was a very optimistic time in the early 80s. It, we, I mean, we kind of got crushed by the end of the 80s, to be fair. But, I mean, the early 80s were very optimistic. And, and I think that shines through in the music that you were covering and also the uh, way that the copy is written as well. It, it felt a very, very optimistic time, didn't it? Yeah, I think, you, you know, Thatcher came into power in 1979. The riots were going on in 81. And in, in many ways, it was anything but an optimistic time. But I think for me, this was a reaction to the Thatcherism. Yeah, it's for me, it was like, don't let the bastards grind you down. You absolutely, can you know, absolutely. Be, no. be power accordingly. But, but that was kind of how it was. It was like, we're going to be optimistic. We're going to be positive. And if I've had, if I've had anything going for me, um, genuinely is probably just i don't really know where it came from but i get given one of those duracell bunny jeans you know <laughs> i got true. born with this one two of those. <laughs> he never stopped so so i think that i was just like you know i'm going to be optimistic i'm going to be energetic and if you are genuine about that you you don't have quite such a hard time selling it because people see it's authentic and that, that energy always was authentic so that's why that's why i went for it um and I, and I think, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the Smiths and the Bunnymen. I would say that two of the funniest interviewees in the world in their prime were Morrissey and Ian McCulloch. Oh, absolutely, Just, absolutely. You know, well, as, well as the one who struggles to give good, good, good hilarious copy. <laughs> and Billy Bragg, who we just mentioned, was always, was always great about walking that line between, and still is, between very earnest politics, very serious, and cracking jokes and i right. think you have to have both to be successful in the world you know absolutely absolutely well we're going to pause uh, for three more tracks and uh, then we're going to come back after that so we've just heard we've just heard there there my dear by dex's midnight runners precious by the jam and so central rain by rem as chosen by uh, tony fletcher here to c- c- uh, to commemorate i was going to say commiserate but commemorate the <laughs> launch of his book jamming so dex is of course we can talk about them in a minute. the jam very special to you of course rem now rem is like a bit of a curveball because they were american you didn't really cover much american music did you early on or, we didn't come did you well we did and we didn't i mean i had a, a very very british um prejudice which was largely um uh, placed on my shoulders by the aforementioned paul weller who mm did not like touring America, didn't like the country, um, you know, despite obviously getting a lot of his musical influences from know. there. Uh, the, you oh, know, the irony. That, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of irony. Now, that said, I went off and interviewed Jello Biafra that, uh, the first time the dead Kennedys came to the UK. I had never met anybody so intelligent in my life, and that interview is reprinted in full. He gave me, like, a sort of two-hour absolute history of the United States, of its politics, of its culture, of punk. I came out of that, like, mesmerized. And I'm still not sure I've met anybody on that level wow. um, in, the, in the British scene. And we did feature stuff from America. But I will say about REM, you know, they were, they were heralded as a flagship group for the whole, uh, you know, American sort of, you know, retro the, you know, invasion of the, of the UK. I was very fortunate that in 1983, um, as it happened, my girlfriend... Um, and, and it was like a steady girlfriend was a publicist at A&M and she was working with R.E.M. Um, 
I was also, believe it or not, there's another job we didn't mention, which was I was doing occasional presenting on the tube, and I was up there the first week they were on. And over the course I, I of that, I think... about that, Tony. I've forgotten you yeah. were a TV star for a while. Well, yeah, TV non-star maybe, but, <laughs> but you know, you can, you can find me on YouTube, uh, cocking up left, right, and centre. But <laughs> I got to see R.E.M. In, in perform on the tube and at the marquee and at Dingwalls in the same weekend. Wow. Um, both the Marquee and Dingwall's shows were game changers. Honestly and truly, James, I already loved Murmur. There was just something about Murmur, the first album, that I was, I was, I've never heard anything like this. Mm. And one of the things that hit me about those shows, I was used to going to gigs at the Marquee where the sweat would be dripping off the walls. Yeah. I was not used to bands playing an hour and a half on the first album. No way. Because there was a very, there was a very punk ethic, wasn't there? Of you course, do 40, yeah. 40 minutes and, you, and you're and done. And you're off and you see you later. Yeah. And R.E.M. just kept playing. It turned out that they had more than one album in them. You know, they had an EP before. They had all these covers. They had another album already written and recorded pretty much, or written and ready to go. And they were stunning. Utterly, wow. utterly stunning. And I was jumped on the chance to interview them then. We featured them three times wow. over their first three albums. Um, I was fortunate to write a biography on the band that got frequently updated and I think does stand as a sort of definitive history of the band. And... Um, and also, uh, John Wilde, uh, who came to jamming under his real name, John Eaton, he was very into American music, and right. he wrote a lot about people like the Gun Club. He brought 10,000 Maniacs to us, and we a husker do. The only act I regret, um, when I actually moved to America, I found out that they were as legendary as R.E.M., is we never covered the replacements. They didn't mean right. as much in the UK. No, they really didn't at all. I mean, I only really got to the replacements a lot later. Um, yeah, they were so important to Americans. Yeah, they really yeah. were. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how it works out like that? So, in, in, so here we are, and we're talking about bands now like REM and Dex's Midnight Runners, which we, we've just heard, and obviously the Jammer. We all know about them, and it was all going on. So, but at the same time, the actual magazine itself was changing. You were getting new distribution. Uh, you were going bi-monthly. It was getting glossier. You were now looking... Just flicking through it uh, last night and today, felt like you started to compete with the other magazines rather than just being what you wanted to do. Is that a, a fair assumption or is that slightly off the mark? No, it's a, it's a fair assumption, James. I mean, we all, yeah, everybody ends up getting co-opted by the system, don't, don't, yeah, don't they? You, yeah. You, you know, my very favourite bands still get co-opted by the system and they will, they will admit it. Uh, the ones that last the distance, everybody you know, finds himself doing things they maybe don't want to. It gets really hard. Once I agreed to go bi-monthly with a major distributor, we had to pull a lot of all-nighters, get better organized. There were still some delightful mistakes in the magazine, print, you know, pages printed in the wrong place, and just some, you know, classic fanzine designs, yeah, unreadable designs. And maybe that kept our independence, but then those same distributors pushed me to go monthly. And I understand where they were coming from. They said bi-monthlies just don't mean anything. You know, you really need to go monthly. Yeah. But I, I maybe should have resisted that because I didn't have the financial backing. I didn't have the staffing. And um, I think, you know, you're, you're just, just, just pushing to get out there. You know, to some extent, um, to some extent, we just became part of the 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 you know we started mixing in and competing with other magazines there's a lot of really good 
um, features in the monthly issues, including like pieces on um, fox hunting and, right. and, and, and nuclear issues and a lot of like quite off the wall interviews and articles. Um, the last four issues were the hardest for me to look at because I actually sort of ultimately handed over the reins to some right. degree. Oh, it, we, right. we sort of thought it might make sense for me to move upstairs. Um, you know, you were about what? And you were about 24, 25 at this point. No, not Were even you? close. 21. You're, tw- you're 21. You were no. moving upstairs at 21. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? I know. I mean, it's, well, it's crazy looking I, back at it. I, it is crazy. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, there is certainly a part of me, James, that wishes I had been much more single-minded. Of course. You know, just a much more like, say, uh, you know, I've got admiration for Nick Logan, how he worked with the face. And, mm. you know, the fact that I was easily distracted by shiny objects, you know, yeah. uh, meant, meant that I did, I did say, well, maybe it's best if we get sort of, you know, a new editorial team. But, but what, what was really hard is the magazine looks great, those last four issues. Yeah. And I read through it and I read through them and I read through them and I couldn't put my finger on pieces that you couldn't live without. Now, uh, you know, obviously in the bigger scheme of things, you can live without this entirely like you can without football. But, you know, life's not as much fun, right? No. So, you, you know, there are a number of pieces in jamming that I think were important in their space and time. I struggled with that in the last four issues. I was just looking going, it's a magazine. Yeah, that's all it is. And I felt that at the time. And I came back after a, a Christmas off, just completely disheartened. And I, I realized that it wasn't something I wanted to be associated with anymore. If that was how it was going to be just a average music magazine. Sure. I mean, I, I guess, you know, and without wanting to be over dramatic about it, it's, you know, the, it, it, you, you do write at the front, actually, the selection of stories from the fanzine that grew up, uh, the fanzine did grow up, but it kind of grew up like the eighties grew up. As we said, we start, you start in the late seventies and, and the, the eighties ended up being this bloated monster, you know, I yeah. mean, all the, the, all the Thatcher stuff and all the greed and the, the fault, just the whole nonsense of the eighties. And it just got so overblown and so ridiculous. I'm not saying that jamming was overblown and ridiculous, but it kind of lost its way. Uh, but yeah. as, as, as all great things do, but what's so wonderful about reading this now is just seeing that that enthusiasm, even with the later issues, is still there, Tony. It's still there. It's just not as cut and paste, maybe, as it was before. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. And there were some good writers involved at the very end, without, without any doubt, some really good writers. Um, and, and I don't want to I, I, I knock anybody individually who was working really, really hard on it. Um, we had some great... Um, uh, front covers, Russell Young, who I mentioned earlier, took these portraits of, of Lloyd Cole and then the Cocteau Twins, uh, yeah. uh, two of the last three covers. And he went straight from that to doing the album cover for George Michael for Faith. Wow. So George Michael had seen those and was like, I want, I want to look like that. Um, you know, all, all of that is, is really good. The enthusiasm was there, but it was a little bit more wink-wink, a little bit more ironic, a little bit more okay, knowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, when I looked at the end, we, we still got straight in on the House Martins. Yeah. I was thrilled to see something on the Happy Mondays in there, 1985. That's you know, I'm like, yeah. yeah. You know, there's a lot of uh, Primal Scream, who you, you know, you know yeah. and love. With yeah, the, yeah. They're in there. Oh, Creation, we covered, like, up, down, left, right, and centre. <laughs> that was yeah. one of the things yeah. I wanted to mention to you, that Alan, Alan McGee, who runs Creation, writes a, a really lovely bit in there, and he talks about something in one of the earlier issues, I think maybe 13 or 14, and you wrote something called A Statement. 
uh, and he read this statement, and that made him want to do it. He was so he was had a record label, he had a club, and he had a fanzine running all at the same time, pretty much what you were doing. And he kind of took the blueprint from what you were doing and made it in his own individual style. Of course, and went on to be very successful. But um, it's just nice to get that for people who are still around doing it now. People still look back at the fanzine stroke magazine with a lot of affection and i think and for me what really comes across is your enthusiasm about it all and that's what i think comes through the book and also comes through the music as well i think that's the that's the overriding thing i think people will get from this as well as you covering a lot of great music yeah well thank you thank you james i really appreciate that and i'm happy to say i'm still enthused about things you know even at our even at our old age you know like like in our in our um what, what do they call it? In our, it's in our something. My mother knows that expression. But anyway, yeah, so, in our old age, in our infirmity. I'm, I'm going to ask you, I will ask you one more. We've basically got four songs that we're going to play out with because otherwise, because otherwise we might not even fit this in yeah, the three-hour sure. show. So the, the four songs we're going to go out with are Echo and the Bunnymen, The Cutter, which is one of the great songs, Cocteau Twins, you just mentioned, Release the Bats by the Birthday Party, which I want to ask you about them, and Wind of Change by Robert Wyatt, uh, which proves that you got very political as well, towards your later issues and that you know and that's so great but the, th- the for me the birthday parties and, and also crass as well to an extent didn't really sort to of seem to fit in with the whole jamming world i mean i know you weren't just a mod thing and i know you were more than that but crass were really coming from a really other side of the world and the yeah, birthday I- party they were they were naughty boys they were naughty yep. boys when when they arrived and i how did you get those how did you marry that in terms of what jamming was and became sure absolutely too so a couple of quick quick stories to that uh, the crass thing uh came about a lot of a crass were big a lot of people were into them um probably my bandmate who would help out with the fanzine jeff probably had them logo on the back of his leather jacket probably had yeah. the anarchy symbol i um I, I brought them to task. I called them to task when I wrote a piece about the youth tribalism that was made going to gigs very, very dangerous. It actually made walking out of your house very dangerous in 1979. Yeah. And Penny Rimbo from Crass wrote back and was like, you know, that's a load of rubbish. We're pacifists, etc." as he would. And I got in a pen pal kind of relationship and he was like, look, come up and interview us, come up and see us. So yeah. I went with my mate, Jeff, another kid, uh, two other kids who were sort of punk anarchists thought they were. And we went and spent a day at Crass HQ. Um, uh, which I write about in my actual memoir, Boy About yeah. Town, which has mm. got this more more fleshed out. Uh, the really important day, actually, and of course our friend Tim, um, yes, which maybe course. actually I've probably met you through Tim. Um, yeah. Tim was a sort of a neighbour of mine in Crystal Palace, but we stayed friends or became friends because he was part of that scene. That's the Crass connection. I otherwise wasn't into that scene musically, though I had respect for Crass and Flux and all of those people politically. The birthday party came about because <laughs> another string to the bow, but this sort of made sense in the, um, in starting in 1981, I put on some gigs at the Africa center, some jamming nights. Right. Uh, and it, yeah, it, you know, that that actually was good cross promotion, and um, I put on one gig, and around that time, uh, Ivo had just got four AD going. Mm-hmm. I was doing very little, very little freelancing. But my only freelancing was for the face, and I managed to you know, talk uh, the, Nick Logan into a piece on four AD. And I uh, somewhere all around, roughly around the same time, Ivo was just you know you'd be on the phone, believe it or not, you know I would have long calls with Jeff Travis. He'd be like, "This is what I'm signing. This is what I'm into. Have you heard this?" I'd do the same with Ivo, and he said, "Well, look, if you're putting on gigs, I've 
I've got this band I just brought in from Australia. They're begging for gigs. Um, they barely played. I'm bringing out an album. They're wonderful. I promise you um, they will be fantastic. And I think enough people will know about them if you put them out the week the album comes out. So yeah. I did. Wow. And, um, and it, was, it was a riot. Like you say, they were naughty boys. They played for a case of beer. I yeah. promise you, truly. He said, just get them a case of beer and they'll be happy. <laughs> they were. And then they came back and did um, what may have been the last gig or one more gig. They were the only band um, other than my own to play that place twice. And they came back completely packed it out, 400 people. Yeah. Um, and uh, at that time, they had a proper rider. And I remember the agent, Mike Hink, being very upset they didn't get their rider. I'm like, Mike, I can't do I don't know what a rider is, you know. No. Uh, you know, just like, here's that, here's that case of beer. So I interviewed them as well. And I take your point. I don't know that the birthday party, you know, sat in musically too well. Um, but I'm really, uh, you know, still glad that we featured them. And I, yeah, also so happy to put them on like, like that early in their career. I think it was literally, you know, the first week of gigs that they did pretty sure. much in the UK. Wow. Yes. So, and your final choice is going to be um, Robert Wyatt's. Um, with yeah. the change, which uh, I think is quite apt, really, because it's uh, an amazing song for an amazing vocalist who I've had the pleasure of meeting several times, Robert White, oh, when good, I was working at, when I was working at Rough Trade with Jeff Travis. He used to come and see us quite a lot. Him and his uh, wife, uh, and a wonderful person, and it's so lovely to hear him uh, on this selection of music as well. So, have you got any Robert White stories for us? I don't personally. Um, the, the politics had run through jamming, you know, from the me attending that famous carnival against the Nazis in yeah. early 78 with the clash yeah. and x-ray specs, steel pulse, TRB, um, you know, Patrick Fitzgerald and all the way to the last issue. And when I was trying to figure out, you know, what political piece, you know, like, like, you know, I'm putting together a bumper issue. What, what, what features so some stuff about cnd stands the test of time it'd be good to have this little introductory piece about red wedge but somebody else who wrote for the magazine did this uh, piece on the robert wyatt swapo single that you're going to play and about the situation yeah. in namibia and we featured that in the uh, in the magazine under the heading the wind of change uh, no connection to the scorpion song of course of the same name <laughs> and um to, uh, you know what to our to our credit uh, this, uh, you, you know, a, a fact that is in the, in the book, you know, jamming had some financial problems and we got rescued by a couple of South African Jews, expat South African right. Jews. And it was, um, uh, you know, part of their own sort of, you know, um, uh, the, the, you know, who they were, uh, they were willing to run those kind of pieces. I mean, I, we had some interesting conversations because they came from you know, a country of apartheid, so there wasn't the cultural mix that we had in the UK. Sure. So they, they actually did come with certain you know, uh, potential prejudices, but they were good people underneath. And when, you know, when we ran pieces like this, they didn't say, oh, no, you need to hear it from the white man's point of view. <laughs> they were like, yeah, run, run with it. So sure. you know, I lost track with them many years ago. They may actually be dead by now. I'm not sure they, they weren't too young at the time, yeah. but... You know, actually, in, in, in hindsight, credits them for, for letting us run pieces like that. And it's a good piece. And I went back and listened to the record. And I was like, oh, man, this is a great record as well. So that made yeah. the cut from the last issues of Jamming. Brilliant. Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, talking to you. You've been on the show a couple of times. And this is a, it really is a wonderful book. And is there is one thing that you think sums up those the sort of nine or ten years and, and the, the lasting impact it's had on you as a person, that jamming? Because, I mean, it's, it's a, a jam-packed nine years for somebody so young as well to have gone through all that and to met all those people. And, you know, you've, you've, you've spent your life in music and writing about music and listening to music, and it still enthuses you. What is it that we sh that you want us as the reader to take from this? 
jamming? Um, great question, James, in the sense <laughs> I'm not sure I have an immediate answer. I would say if you're going to take anything from it, it's, uh, you know, if um, – uh, if you don't try, you can't succeed. You know, if you don't try, you can't fail. I mean, if you have an idea, go for it. It may fail. I've had so many failures in my life, James. You know, so, so many. Um, <laughs> you know, and you and it's nice to be remembered for your successes. It's nice of to have course. one or two successes. But if you don't try, you know, you won't achieve anything. So I think that's that's the takeaway. Just you know, give it a go, and you you never know what you've got in you. Okay. Well, I just want to thank you once again, Tony, and. Uh, my takeaway is go and buy this. It's 25 quid. It's on Omnibus Press. It's a doorstop of a book. It's colourful. It's exciting. It's funny. And it's educational as well. And it's, yeah, as, as Tony says, um, it's, uh, yeah, you, it just proves that you can try it and, uh, you can, and you can succeed. You definitely can succeed. Thank you very much, Tony Fletcher. Thank you to Omnibus for sending me this copy. And um, yes, it is a doorstop, but it's a very uh, enjoyable doorstep. And we're going to finish with the Bunnymen, Cocktail Twins, the Birthday Party and Robert Wyatt. Thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, I'll be back after that lot. Thank you again to James Endicott for the interview and thank you to you for listening along. Some more info about those upcoming events. Uh, Hopefully they're still upcoming at the point that you listen to this show. On Wednesday, February 23rd, I'm going to be at the Rock and Roll Book Club at the Dublin Castle in Camden Town in a conversation hosted by Tony Gleed. Thursday, February 24th, I'm going to be in Brighton at the Rialto Theatre in a conversation with Guy Pratt. And that one is being hosted by City Books. And on Friday, February 25th, I'm going to be at the Electric Palace Cinema in Hastings at an event hosted by Printed Matter Books there. We're going to show the movie Rough Cut and Ready Dubbed, rarely seen post-punk Street Verite movie after the screening. I'll be in conversation with DJ Wendy May. The event we had to cancel in New York City back in January, or postpone I should say, has, I'm happy to say now, been rescheduled Tuesday, March 29th, Barry Electric. That one I'll be in conversation with WNYC's John Schaefer. The New York City event is free. The ones in the UK are not. So visit the show notes for details or go to facebook.com facebook.com of course tony fletcher i want to thank everybody for listening along this far i want to thank greg morton for help with the editing and designing the logos thank my son noel fletcher for the great theme music and reading out the titles we hope to be back soon we hope you've enjoyed this first series and here's to the fanzine culture surviving and thriving do you want to buy a copy of jamming